There was an indigenous Brazilian man who died recently in the last month or two, and he was the very last of his people um, and the last of his tribe. Now, we don't know his tribe's name. We don't know what language they spoke or even what it was called. We don't even know his name because of that. And because of this, he was just called the man of the hole because of the large holes that he would dig inside of his home. That We don't know why he would do that because we couldn't talk to him. They were an isolated tribe that lived in the rainforest of Brazil, and most of his people um, were victims of genocide in the 1970s. They were killed by greedy farmers who wanted their land. The last of his people died in 1990s, somewhere in there, and he was all alone from the mid-1990s till his death in the last year. Didn't really want contact with the outside world, as you can imagine, based on how he and his people were treated. And so he lived for a long time just in isolation. No family, no friends, no one to talk to, no one who even knows his name or could talk to him if they wanted to. Now, there's plenty to unpack in that story, but I was just struck by the loneliness that that must have been like. I mean, can you imagine just being alone for that long? Not an acquaintance, not somebody at the store, not even somebody to say hi to. No one knows your name or even your language, completely alone in every sense of the word. Now, we might not be the last of our people, obviously, but we've all felt the pain of loneliness at different moments, I'm sure. And we were not created to be alone. But sometimes even when we do experience community, we get to be around people and they're around us, it's not always that great either. Sometimes there's new and fresh pain that's found there. So what's the cure for our loneliness and man, why is community so hard to get? Well, this morning we're going to talk a lot about relationships and community. We'll see really in chapter 4 of the book of Ecclesiastes, if you haven't turned there already, this is kind of what the subject that Solomon or the preacher tackles. And it's what he's searching for as he's looking kind of for the meaning of life, for the answer for, man, what, what is going on in the face of death? And so today we're going to talk about um, the beauty of community, talk about the brokenness of community, and then we'll, we'll conclude with the community of Jesus. So if you have your Bibles and if you are able, if you would stand um, for the reading of God's Word from Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Again, I saw the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who is not yet born and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either a son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. His eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is a vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. But if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him, and a three-fourth cold is not quickly broken. 
Better is a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from the prison of his throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. And I saw the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end to all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who will come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is a vanity and a striving after wind. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I ask um, that you would be with us, that your Holy Spirit would come and you would illuminate your word. This is a difficult book, and there are verses and passages here that are hard to understand. Will you help us to see not just what it means, not just the, the words that you're trying to say, but what it means for us, how we are supposed to apply it, to believe it, to put it into action, and how it will make us more like Jesus. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. You can be seated. Our, first, we're going to take a look at the beauty of community. And so if you are taking notes in your bulletin, our first point is that we desire community. It's just that we desire community. So all of us desire community or we desire relationships. And from the very beginning, okay, in the Garden of Eden, before sin came, God said it's not good that man is alone. We were created by God intentionally to desire relationships. And it's a good thing to, to want people to be in your life. It's a good thing to want to have friends, to want to have relationships with other people. Now, the book of Ecclesiastes can be a bit of a downer. If you haven't realized that yet, you will in the you know, coming eight weeks that we have left in this book. He has no problem talking about the futility of life, the vanity of it, and all of the problems that there are to be found. But in this section, he doesn't say that community and relationships are dumb and foolish and a waste of our time. He doesn't advocate and say, hey, we should just do life by ourselves because what good are people anyway? And so we're going to skip ahead and we're going to look and we're going to focus on verses 9 through 12 first. We'll cover the rest later. And we see right away in 9, he says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. He says having a community is a good thing. And he goes through a couple different ways that it's good. Well, it's good because it helps you in your work. Okay, it's much easier to paint a room, rake some leaves, work an oil well, do, do whatever. You have more hands to help you. It makes things easier. If you have more people or a larger community, it'll increase your reward. The more work is going to get done, there will be more money, more crops, a bigger field, a bigger harvest. But the beauty of community isn't that it lines our pockets with more cash. Verse 10, he also says, For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Having a community and others around us, it, it helps us when we fall down, when we fail. And he's not just thinking of literal moments when you fall down and you need someone to help you back up. But he's thinking of all the times in life that we experience suffering. As Christians, even when we fall into sin... We have a community and we have people who can help us come back to the Lord, who can literally and spiritually lift us up when we fall. And how unfortunate is it for those who don't have anyone when they fall down? They fall down and they, they stay there. They, have to, they only have themselves to rely on and their own strength to go to for help. Verse 11, he says again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? The community that helps us when we're in need, he paints the picture, right, of two people who are lying down in the cold. Maybe they're camping or they're, as they're falling asleep, they gather up. They're using their bodies to warm each other so that they don't freeze. You can picture two people camping 
camping out in the snow on the mountains. Instead of freezing to death alone, they, they huddle up together so they can stay alive by the fire. But it's not just then, right? There's many of other situations that we have needs and we need people. We need a community to come and to help us. It shouldn't just be in some of these moments that help us, right? But there are others. We, we can pay each other's bills. We give away our possessions instead of just selling them or throwing them in the trash. We provide meals for each other when babies come or when we're sick. We see this in the early church in Acts, especially in Acts 2. They were a community that tried to meet each other's needs. They were willing to give up what they had to help those among them who had a need. That's what community can do and should do. Because none of us can meet all of our needs on our own. We all need help. Verse 12, though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. This means the community will help us to endure opposition and hardship. He uses an example of one person being assailed or attacked, right? Maybe as they're traveling alone on the road. He says, hey, if you're alone, you, you might be in trouble. You might not win that fight. Now, being a wrestler, I used to really pride myself on feeling like I could take on anybody, right? Even those who are bigger than me. Because, you know, I'm tough. I, I can handle it. Which I felt like was every, everybody. Which wasn't true. You can look at my record. Um, <laughs> but I felt that way, at least. But it's a lot easier, instead of trying to do it by yourself, to have two of you against one other person. Your odds are going up significantly. Then you can resist. But Solomon is not just telling us about good techniques for navigating alleyways and busy city streets that might be dangerous. He's telling us that the community can help protect us. That having others around us, it can help us endure when we are assailed and when the problems and the issues of life come to overtake us. It's much easier to endure even just opposition if you're not alone. Okay, imagine being the only Christian in a room when someone starts saying how foolish and dumb the Bible is. It's just a bunch of made-up stories. Okay, now imagine you're in the room, but you have five Christians with you and you hear that. Well, suddenly it's a lot easier to endure that kind of talk. Okay, being together, it allows us to endure more things. In verse 12, it continues and said, A threefold cord is not quickly broken. It's a lot harder to break down a community than it is to break down individuals. It would be much harder to remain a Christian all by yourself. It's much easier when you have a church family around you to encourage you, to pray for you, to lift you up, to keep you warm. Sometimes these verses are, are read at weddings, often, right? But they're not really about marriage particularly. They're about the, the need and the beauty of all human relationships and the community that all of us need. And this desire that we have, it's not just good, but it is given to us by God. Okay, on Wednesday nights, we've been going through our series on being human. We've talked a lot about sexuality and gender, but we've also just talked about, well, what does it mean to be us? What does it mean to be a human being? Well, part of what it means... To be human is to desire relationships. That's why God said to Adam, it's not good. The man is alone. We are meant to desire community. And he wasn't making a statement just about singleness and marriage. He wasn't just saying, okay, we need to get women in here. But he was saying that, hey, we need each other. He designed us as human beings to be in community together. So the next time that you're, you're lonely or you're struggling, you wish that you had a friend or a friend who was nearby, you're not weak. There's not something wrong with you. You're simply desiring a good thing that God made you to want. So this desire for community, it's good, it's wonderful, not just because of its many benefits, but it's hardwired into us and our bones and our being. The problem is we don't always experience those blessings, do we? Well, why not? Point number two is that sin destroys community. 
Sin destroys community. Your sin, it never just affects you. It always affects other people. Whether you see it or whether you don't. And most of the times you don't. And it's not just our individual sins, but it's also the brokenness, the sin of our world that destroys community. It destroys our ability to have healthy, God-honoring relationships with each other. Throughout most of this chapter, right, Solomon walks through all the various ways that sin, both individual and corporate sin, is destroying community and relationships all over the world. Verse 1, going back to the beginning, he says again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Behold, the tears of the oppressed, they had no one to comfort them. In the side of their oppressors, there was power and there was no one to comfort them. He's describing the way that people treat one another in our world. Okay, instead of experiencing worldwide community and peace, there's oppression and injustice. He doesn't look out and see community, he sees oppressions. And oppression here, it's, it's the abuse of people. It's using people for your own gain. So really, it's the outworking of greed and selfishness. Instead of viewing people as image bearers made by God, with infinite value and worth, it just views them as commodities to be used and spent. Or it views them as obstacles for what you really want. And if they're not people anymore, if they're not image bearers, we can just treat them however we want to. We can yell and scream and emotionally tear them down to get them to do what we want. We can enslave them, can make them work in horrible conditions. We can pay them less than they deserve, steal their money. That's what Solomon appears to be seeing here in these oppressions, at least some of them. And all of these actions, they destroy community. And he sees the sorrow of those who have this done to them, the oppressed. He says, the tears of the oppressed, as he sees, and they have no one to comfort them. Even this greed, it just destroys their ability to have community themselves. And on the side of the oppressors, there was power and no one to comfort them. He kind of repeats this observation. And he's demonstrating that those who have power, they're usually selfishly, they just can't be stopped. And when he looks at the reality of sin and how it's destroying, it, it brings grief. So it leads him in verse 2 to say, Well, I thought the dead who are already dead are more fortunate than the living who are still alive. He would agree with Killmonger who said, you know, death is better than bondage. He'd rather be dead than have to suffer enslavement or this oppression. He'd rather be dead than have to really continue suffering life as it is. The way that community is so destroyed by sin. But he actually goes one step further in the next verse. He doesn't stop. He says in verse 3, but better than both, okay, both being the dead and the alive, is he who has not yet been born. He hasn't seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun says, hold up, you know what, maybe death actually isn't better. Because the dead still had to see and acknowledge the horror that happens in life. So maybe it's even better if you're just never born at all. Because at least they never knew. Never had to experience it for themselves. Didn't have to feel the pain and suffering of sin. And both Job and Jeremiah, they're two other people that we see in God's word who wish that they had never left their mother's wombs. And their moments of suffering, that's what they cry out and say, I wish I'd never been born. It's not just, I wish I was dead. I wish I didn't have to see this. It's a common longing among those who see the destruction of sin. Not just the way it destroys community, but all sin. He goes on in verse 4, he describes another way. And he's got a bunch of them that sin destroys community. In verse 4 he says, And I saw that all toil and all skill in work, it comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Because envy, it, it destroys us. It rots us out. He sees how many people seem to only be motivated to work just because they see what someone else has. And they want 
more. Or they want just what they do. They see money and success and just want it for themselves. Instead of two people working together to be more efficient and to help each other, like in verse 9, they're working in competition with one another to see who can have more. And this is so empty. It's vaporous. It's a striving after the wind because there's always another neighbor you can compete with. There's always somebody else who has even more than you have now. It's never enough. It goes on and on. I've been reading a few couple books about some great athletes lately. Um, and these people, they, they often describe right, their competitive drive to win and to be the best. And, and it's inspiring in some ways to see the dedication of the work that they do. But you know, competitiveness sometimes is just another fancy way to talk about envy. We just want to make sure that we win, not someone else. I need to be the best, not you. And this kind of envy, it can destroy our ability to, to have communion with each other, to have community. I can't have a true relationship with you if the most important thing is that I beat you. I have more than you. I work harder than you. It's kind of a, it can be a form of selfishness. It doesn't care who it hurts or how it affects others. But, right, we can, we can baptize and idolize competitiveness because we, we love greatness. But deep down, too, I think it's because we're also envious. We wish we could be the best. We want to be the greatest to have more and more than others. Now, I'm not trying, listen, I'm not trying to say that sports are sinful. I spent a lot of time yesterday watching them and cheering for them. But competitiveness can often be sinful when it's envy. And it destroys community. And he describes the fool's attempt, right, to deal with this problem. Okay, so people are just, we're working, we're just trying to be better than one another. So verse 5, somebody gets smart, they say, well, the fool folds his hands and he eats his own flesh. Now, that's a weird verse. Well, let's take a look closer. What does that mean? Well, folding one's hands, it's also usually kind of a way to describe the absence of work. Somebody who's, who's not actively working with their hands, they're just, you know, kind of, kind of folding them or, or laying down to take a nap. So this person in verse 5, they refuse to play this game. Since most people are working for envy, they're just trying to keep up with the Joneses, they quit. They don't work. They're nihilistic about the world. They just check out. And he's saying, well, this is going to lead to starvation because you, you don't work. You ain't going to be able to buy food. What are, you, what are you going to eat? So I don't think he's describing them and saying they're literally becoming cannibals. So that's what he metaphorically is getting at. But he's saying that the solution of nihilism and rejecting the world, it's not going to lead you to nirvana and utopia, deciding, well, I'll, I'll check out of this and do my own thing. It's just going to lead to self-destruction inwardly, that you're, you're eating yourself. And our sin, it destroys community, but refusing to even try doesn't create community either, and it doesn't help you. It won't make you better, it won't set you free from pain. If you just stay alone, you're going to self-destruct too. Verse 6, he says, well, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. So instead of having idle hands doing nothing, we should do our work quietly and without envy. This verse, it echoes, it might remind you of 2 Thessalonians and also 1 Thessalonians. Both of those books have verses similar to this. 2 Thessalonians 3.12 says, do their work quietly, earn their own living. 1 Thessalonians 4.11, aspire to live quietly, mind your own affairs and work with your hands. Saying, well, a life filled with workaholism isn't really going to work either. That's also just vanity. Instead, we should have our hands full of just living a, a quiet, faithful life, doing our work to Jesus. 
But sin, it destroys our community, makes us chase toil. Verse 7, he says again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no, no one else. They don't have a son or a brother, but there's no end to all their toil. Eyes are never satisfied with riches. They never ask, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. It's describing somebody who's completely alone. The man we talked about in the beginning, they have no friends or family, so they just work all the time. But they never work enough. There's never enough work to be done, never gain enough toil, and it also ends up never satisfying either. Because we're not made to be alone. And when we chase the chasing of toil, it's vaporous and vanity. It just leads to more unhappiness and loneliness. Verses 13 through 12, it describes, you know, one of the final ways, too, that sin can destroy community. It's one of the most devastating ways is that sin can actually make community unfulfilling as well. That even this true and this godly desire that we have, even when we find a little bit of it in some places, it doesn't truly satisfy our hearts. And he does this kind of right by telling the story of two kings. Verse 13, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. So he contrasts. There's two different kinds of kings. There's the old king who doesn't listen to others. He's isolated from community. He has nobody but himself. And his foolish sin is going to lead to the destruction, not just of himself, but as the kingdom as well. There's another king Paradoxically, he's young, and he's poor, but he's wise. Verse 14, he went from prison to the throne. Though in his own kingdom, he'd been, been born poor. Even more unexpected is this young king was not just poor, but he seems to be an ex-con from prison. It's like an ex-con who somehow ended up as the president. It's unlikely. And yet here, this is what happens in verse 15. I, I saw all the living who move about under the sun. Along with the youth who was to stand in the king's place, there was no end to all of the people, all of whom he led. In contrast, he's listening to advice. And this isn't just saying, I think, well, he's the king and they got to all listen to him because he's in charge and he has authority. No, he's saying he's popular. People like him. They're listening to him. He's got it. He's living the dream. This is the American dream. He came from nothing and he's got the riches. He's got it all. But there's a problem. Verse 16, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely also this is vanity and a striving after the wind. He's still going to die. And after a while, no one's going to care about him anymore. His name is going to be forgotten like a long forgotten king or forgotten president like Martin Van Buren or Millard Fillmore. And the tragedy is that, that sin destroys community because it fades. Can't last can't last in this life and then it's broken by death. And even when we have it, it doesn't satisfy it, right? We, we, sometimes we hear verses 9 through 12 read at weddings. A three-fold cord, three cord is not quickly broken. Two are better than one. But we don't usually read all the verses after that, I notice. Haven't often heard the preacher say after his talk about the beauty of relationships and marriage and community, we don't hear him keep reading and then say, well, surely this is vanity and a striving after wind. <laughs> okay, but sin destroys. It destroys it. And we know this is true. Marriages end in divorce. Spouses abuse, neglect, cheat, or death comes. Being a widow or a widower is not what anyone expects on their wedding day when they say, I do. 
But marriage can't save us from loneliness forever. Community can't. No community, no social group, no team. None of that stuff will truly last in this life. Death comes for all of us. And even if we have it, none of it can really satisfy our hearts. Even if you happen to find the greatest community where wonderful relationships, where you're known, you can truly be yourself, it still can't save your soul. Not like Jesus can. It will end up disappointing you. And sin, it can even destroy our ability to enjoy the good community that we do find in this life. So what's the solution? Well, our desire for community is good, but sin destroys and corrupts it. What can we do? Point number three is Jesus creates a new community. Jesus creates a new community. We're trying to find the gospel in this book everywhere. And what I see is, so I'm reminded, when Jesus came down to earth, He came down as our Savior. Right? He came down to defeat the power of sin and death. And to set us free from bondage so we can have eternal life. Our deepest problem with sin. Not just that we're lonely, but that we're dead. And we need resurrection. But Jesus also came to found the church. And it wasn't founded on just abstract principles. It wasn't just founded on 13 apostles. It was founded on the blood of Jesus. That at the cross, the tomb, and the resurrection, Jesus, He created a new community called the church. It got inaugurated at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came. And the church that Jesus creates is where true community should be found. That in the church, the oppressor no longer uses others, but comforts the oppressed and worships alongside them. In the church, we work not to be better than our neighbors, but we work for the coming kingdom. And we work for our neighbors to help them, not ourselves. In the new community, the church, we don't work just to hoard for ourselves. We give everything away to the needy and the poor. In this new community, the church, those who don't have children, spouses, or family, they find their people. In the church that Jesus creates, we are all brothers and sisters in the faith. The church, our, our relationships, they're not based on what we do for one another. They're not just based on our political views or political party. They're not based on our favorite football team. They're not based on our interests at all. Our community is founded and based on Jesus. The Pentecost and the resurrection and the ascension and his return again. And our community, it's a community and a humanity that spans the whole globe. We have far more in common with a Christian Somalian refugee than we do with our neighbor across the street who doesn't know Jesus. Because our community is founded by Christ. And nothing else. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 is part of our call to worship this morning. It might have seemed long, but I thought it tied in with this passage this morning. Uh, read 19. He says, so then you are no longer strangers or aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and with the members of the household of God. You are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are united by Jesus and Jesus alone. He is the cornerstone everything is built on. If He wasn't here, all of this should disappear. If we could keep being a church without Jesus, we've probably missed something. He should be the thing that holds us together. And Tanglewood Bible Fellowship, right, we're, we're not the temple, but we're just a brick and we're a stone and a part of the universal church and the kingdom of God that Jesus is building. 
And every single Christian everywhere is a part of this community. This is one of the most beautiful things about the church, that we are a new people that God makes. The gospel is not just that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. It is also that he adopted you into his family. But now every single Christian is your brother or your sister in Christ. And we belong to one another. We're supposed to be a church family where we can be have a place where we're known. Where we're loved and we're accepted and we're cared for. Not based on anything that we do or even who we are, but on who Jesus says we are. And because Jesus says that we're family. And so that's why we love one another. Problem is, that's not always what we experience, is it? Even in this community. And this is where I have to make a, a caveat. This church that in the new humanity and creation community that Jesus is creating... Um, it's still under construction. It doesn't always describe reality. Because sin is still present. And sin destroys community, and sin can even destroy local churches, and far too often does. And it's especially painful for us when churches, places that, that should be this, that should be this new, this new community, this new humanity, this different way of life, are just places of sin where we get hurt even more so than we've been hurt outside in the world. When you go to church because of the promise of community only to be betrayed, used, and abused, it creates a profound hurt. And this is a reality under the sun. But it doesn't mean that Jesus has failed. The, the reality of our suffering, though deep and painful, does not undo the work of Jesus. And the church is a work in progress just as all of us are individually, aren't we? Unless you think you're finished. I, someone will probably help you realize that's not true. But Ephesians 5.22 continues. He tells us that Christ also loved the church. Loved her even though she's not perfect. Well, she's deeply, not just not perfect. She is dead and sinful and full of more issues than we know. But Jesus knows all of them. And yet Jesus loved the church and he gave himself for her. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. So that he might present her to himself a glorious church. Not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So the church has plenty of blemishes at the moment. Universal and many local. And there's sexual abuse scandals, televangelists, prosperity preachers, celebrity pastors who are all about their image and platform, churches that just want to be businesses, pastors that just want political power, and so much more. We could all add our own stories, I'm sure. All the blemishes that we see. And all of this sin, it does stain us. But Christ is washing his bride. He is doing something new. And this reality of sin does not free us from our need for community. We don't get to decide that the church is for other people and we're going to do it by ourselves. No, no, no. You, you were adopted into a family. You don't get to take yourself out of it. In fact, there is no way out. It's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for Christians to be without a church. There's a, again, there's absolutely local churches you should flee, but don't flee the bride of Christ. Because Jesus is building his church, and every believer is a part of it, whether you like it or not. And we're all in this together as Jesus remakes the world.
and reconciles all things to himself, as he says in Colossians. You won't find a church without sin, but you also won't find a church that Jesus is not busy sanctifying and washing white, and one day it will be spotless and blameless. Not because of amazing pastors or amazing music or even wonderful members, but because of Jesus and what Jesus can do and the blood that washes away all sin. This morning we've been talking about community. You know, we rightly desire community, but sin ruins it. But we can find it in Jesus alone and in the community that he created as a part of his body. So our challenge is that, well, we should be part of the community that Jesus is making new. I'm going to close this in prayer and we're going to transition to, to a time of communion. Lord, I, I thank you. Lord, I thank you that you have not given up on the church. I have at points. I've been tempted to. Tempted to just walk away and think, oh, maybe it's just you and me, Jesus. We'll do it on our own. And yet, Lord, all of the sin of my life, of our lives, of the church everywhere, that you see, you didn't wash your hands, burn it up with fire, and then do something different. Lord, you still saw us, and you loved us, and you came, and you died for us. And you were busy washing, making us new. And you never get frustrated even as we continue to dirty ourselves. You're trying to clean us up. You just love us and show us compassion and keep going to work. Lord, would we place our hope not just in a human institution, but would our hope be in what you are doing in our institution? Would our hope be that you will one day Walk us all clean and white as snow at that great wedding feast when you return. And we would be able to find glimpses of that true community here, not because of how wonderful people are, but because of how wonderful you are and what you are doing is. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. The blood of Jesus will never lose its power and it can cover all of your sins. Here's this benediction from the end of Romans 15. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. God bless you. Go in peace.